Okay. Three, two, one. Azione. Cadre cigarettes. First is history, second time as sophistication. The people cigarette, enjoy cadres, and with every puff, know you're a patriot. Sponsors of your committee program. Okay, that was pretty good. How much time do we have? It was amazing, but we have only three minutes, so you need to hurry up. Okay, 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 okay. Holly, you ready? You ready for tonight's episode, yeah, which is yeah, all sure. about keeping up with the Habsburgs? Fantastic. And what's going to be extra great for this episode is we've been looking for that tie-in that's going to get us kind of present tense, past tense, Habsburgian all over everybody. Um, the American Conservative, uh, a magazine I do not subscribe to, has an article called The Peril and Promise of Austro-America, and I'm going to bring it up because it sort of makes the case that in this kind of you know, uh, very divided America, that a kind of federated ideal, ethnicities, languages that the Habsburg dual monarchy truly represented is maybe uh, a model to think about. And it's something we can talk about is maybe, is this catchy with conservative Europe? Is this catchy on the continent? Will it play in Vienna? Right. Well, I would love to talk about this. I think that this is a great issue to bring up, especially because I think that the model is so valuable. And that's part of why I have this passion for the mm -hmm. Habsburgs, because they really were able I to agree. keep together such disparate cultures under one I empire. Agree. So we really should look at what it would be like to all live under one sovereign rule. Oh, Perhaps I don't agree with the that. Habsburgs could become new global Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yes, no. yes, because no, no, no. I don't. in these times, we have to look at other structures view, that in the past have been more successful. Our viewers are really, I think, going to want us to steer around maybe the actual Habsburgs. I think if we want to talk, you know, about uh, the kind of theory around it, I think it's going to be okay. But I, I think I think most of our viewership are, are coming at us kind of left of monarchism. Well, have they really contended, though, with the ideas of the great thinkers of, of the revolution in France, for example? And I have right here Edmund Burke yeah, we've done on the reflections on revolution in France. That's, that's, and he that's, talks specifically that's, about that's, how you need the expertise that's, that's, of older okay. generations. And that's the Habsburgs exactly. have the number one expertise in the world they're the ones who you're talking about like uh, oh wait uh, hey run a global uh, but, 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 are we talking about like the race car guy you want to put the race car guy in charge of something is that what we're yes, talking about yes yes i think that the Habsburg family really has what it takes to be the okay. leaders of okay. the world okay. going okay. forth okay. and that there are okay. things we should understand about Fiamma, the Fiamma. Of, of what we're going to do is a couple segments before Habsburgs we're actually going we're going to backload this one we're going to backload well, it uh, you know towards what? the end that's going to be great holly it's I really great. do think that the readers need to understand. Thank you, Ali. Thank you. Of Burke. Let me, yeah. let me say, let me just say this, okay? Let me just say We're rolling. This. Live from West Berlin, it's the committee program with Aaron Chaudhary, Julia Doubleday, Forrest Lovett, Fiamma Meli, Jevat Castrati, and yours truly, Jacopo Castelletti. And now, the host of the show, a man who is, in fact, desperate to keep up with the Habsburgs, Aaron Chaudhary. Yeah, thank you. 
Thank you. You know, I am desperate to keep up with the Habsburgs, and it was one of the segments where I did think of the title first, and I do want to, just in case the switchboard in Coach to the Lake New Mexico has lit up with any complaints, I do want to immediately say that the show is firmly anti-monarchy. Uh, for me, it was just sort of, you know, it was something that's, that it was clever, and I think Holly is very much someone who is steeped in knowledge of the era, and I think she was being a bit sarcastic when she was openly and vocally supporting a return of actual Habsburgs to an actual monarchy. Um, I think that – I think she's kidding. She is someone who I vouch for. I met her on the Bernie campaign, and she likes cats. And I just – you know, I really – she's well-credentialed at least in that regard. I'm doing – I'm kind of hiding from the mic here. I'm having a problem with that. <laughs> uh, I mean it's been quite – it's been quite a week, so I just wanted to make that clear. But thank you for the introduction. I think that was well done. I think that I think that was well done. We haven't done one like that in a while. It's I wasn't I wasn't actually supposed to be in the studio. We have I mean we have a lot of extra you know folks in Berlin. There is a situation happening in Europe, and uh, a lot of people are running. And actually, we're cohabitating in the studio with some folks, so it's a little uh, back and forth. And I apologize for any interruptions, but we. Uh, in moving boxes and moving other things, I will tell you, though, some important things have surfaced. And that gave me another idea for segments, which is sort of the theme that we've been going with, is everyone has idea for a segment or insists or makes Julie have an idea for a segment. And then I make you think of an introduction for the segment. So I'm going to ask you to do that again. Um, I have a bunch, you know, not just Oscar and the Globe, but many objects collected through a year of years of, of hard labor in the communications world and uh, a bunch of boxes kind of unearthed with some weird stuff in it. And I thought that I would just sort of maybe one by one in some of our monologue time, share them with you and explain how I think they relate to the worlds of communication. So what I need you to do now is sort of roll with some credits, kind of a BBC vibe, and we'll call it a history of a run in a hundred objects like that BBC program with the gentleman with a nice voice who sounds very smart. Uh, mm -hmm. When he says "history of the world and 100 objects," he doesn't say it like that. Though. The he history says it. of a run and 100 objects, kind of like kind of like that. Yeah, but we'll, I'll generate a British voice for it because I want this to be serious. Mm -hmm. Not that you're not serious. I just I want this to be serious in a different way. And now, the history of a run in 100 objects. Yes, quite. Hi. Yeah, so this is a, a new segment, uh, a history of running 100 objects, and object number one is an interesting one. It's an interesting one, and I think it's important for the viewers to know uh, here at Committee, we come from lineage of working for a variety of folks in a variety of ways, uh, including in the NGO world, uh, including learning a lot about how that world works, uh, and we can talk about some of that a different time. I want to talk about some mechanical things of how it works, and I have a very interesting object. An object of how the other half, I want to say the other half, I mean the other point oh 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 to the exponential 1% lives, and these are Melinda Gates's interview notes. This beautiful laminated thing, and actually it gave uh, us an idea that well, I'll start at the beginning. So we did used to work for uh, Melinda Gates's uh, executive office. I'm sure we signed a million things saying we won't say exactly what we were doing, which was just promoting the general things that she was doing. Uh, but when you are someone who is extremely that wealthy, one of the things you don't have to do is remember stuff that well. And so what you will have is like a beautifully set ring 
binder like this that will have folks and their anecdotes and times and places that you get it on there because the rich are not like you or I. They have people to keep track of these things. It's very good. But what I wanted to say in terms of communications tactic was seeing this, then we started actually using photos as triggers for folks uh, for in, on interviews to kind of from their, even from their own lives and stuff, just always having photos is something they can work off of. It's in their hands. They look up at the, at, at the camera, they look back down. It actually is an interesting tactic when you use it in that way. But anyway, so if you have a lamination machine, or a billion dollars, in which case you can make somebody laminate whatever you want. I think that's what people who are that rich do. They laminate everything. You don't have to remember anyone's name. You can just do it like that. I'll, we'll get another object next time. This is the Global News Rodeo with Arun Chowdhury and Forrest Lovett. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. I am your host, Arun Chowdhury. And now, the seventh of the year, your global news rodeo. Yes, we keep track of stuff like that. We're really on top of it around here. Uh, this is the segment in which we do a roundup of world news as curated by the show's own Forrest Levette. Let's go. Item one, update. The Russian invasion continues. And we're not going to do a lot of cute titling around this again, just the facts, ma'am. NPR is reporting updates on the Russian ongoing invasion in Ukraine. The UN Refugee Agency says the conflict has led to more than 2 million people fleeing the country, the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Over 800,000 of them have reportedly crossed into Poland. I think that's low. I think it's actually more like 1.5 now, although folks then move on to Germany, other places. Foreign ministers from Russia and Ukraine met in Antalya, Turkey on Thursday for a series of negotiations. One topic, actually, I'm going to editorialize here. I think it was the only topic uh, that the Belarus negotiations are where the peace talks are going on. One topic was the creation of humanitarian corridors from Moorpool and a 24-hour ceasefire, which was rejected. These talks come after a strike hit on a maternity killing a hospital in the city, which we all saw, uh, three people. The mayor of Moorpool says around 1,200 civilians have died in the last two weeks, and I think we're also starting to get figures on... Um, on military casualties, which do seem quite high. Item 2, request denied. The EU says no to Ukrainian membership. Al Jazeera is reporting EU officials have condemned the unspeakable suffering at the hands of the Russian invasion, but have denied an expedited membership to the Union for Ukraine. In response to demands coming from Kiev and Ukrainian President Zelensky, all 27 member nations met on Friday and decided against a fast-track process. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, <laughs> a nice fella, uh, and an opponent of EU enlargement said, I want to focus on what we can do for Zelensky tonight, tomorrow, and EU accession of the Ukraine is something for the long term, if at all. French President Macron was quoted saying, can we open a membership procedure with a country at war? I don't think so. Can we shut the door and say never? It would be unfair. Can we forget about the balance points in that region? Let's be cautious. Again, I have to editorialize this and say that EU expansion has only sort of been used as this uh, defensive or aggressive posture based on your political persuasion, but it actually has not been to bond a community or a continent together. And there where, nowhere is this more glaringly obvious than in the Western Balkans, where not only have um, several folks done all the things they were supposed to do to get into direct talks to come in, I'm thinking about North Macedonia, the name North Macedonia in itself says that they have done the thing, uh, but also many other places, Albania, uh, the Western Balkans have every opportunity becoming a second front 
on the war that we're seeing coming on now. And Europe seems completely oblivious to paying attention to this place because, again, it doesn't fall into the Cold War dynamic. Uh, you know, people are talking about a multipolar world, but both sides of the conflict we see now are people who are reminiscing, nostalgic for a bipolar world, for a bipolar world. That is not the same thing. And I think we're seeing what happens when people fall outside your notions of what can happen in that bipolar world. All right, enough for me. Item three, au revoir imperialist. Mali expels French ambassador. Deutsche Welle is reporting the country of Mali has expelled the ambassador from France and demanded the withdrawal of the French military. In the former French colony, an anti-France pan-Africanist movement has been growing, which seeks to strengthen its ties with Moscow. The leader of the movement, Adama Bandiara, said of the decision, it's only logical that we're pursuing a win-win relationship with Russia, and we found that Russia is sincere in their partnership. That's why we prefer Russia over France. Our choice is justified because Russia has never colonized any country. I mean, look, we have we've had a lot of fight back and forth about uh, what imperialism means, what colonization means. I think the bottom line here is that you do see what a multipolar world looks like and how the folks in Asia, Africa, Latin America, how they react to this multipolar coming is going to be incredibly interesting. And I think it's what Vijay Prashad said he and Noam Chomsky's book is about, the kind of, that they're working on. So we'll, of course, bring you that when when it's a thing. Item four, bootlicking bonanza. The U.S. military budget is increased, if you can imagine such a thing. World Socialist website is reporting the U.S. House of Representatives agreed on Wednesday to a record $782 billion military budget. It starts to add up to money. The spending increase was overwhelmingly passed with bipartisan support. Additionally, domestic social spending portion was passed only $730 billion. The bill also allocates another $14 billion for aid to Ukraine. This makes a total expenditure for U.S. military intelligence apparatus over $1 trillion, surpassing the next eight countries in the world combined. <laughs> Item number five, end on a good note. Chile has its first gay marriage. Reuters is reporting Javier Silva and Jaime Nazar have become the first men to marry in Chile after two after the law allowing same-sex marriage went into effect. The Chilean Congress voted in December, giving legal rights for same-sex couples after a long battle by LGBTQ activists in the largely conservative country. The men have been together for seven years and have two children. Silva was quoted saying, now our children have the same rights as other families and they will be able to have, we hope, a better future that they will not be discriminated against for having two parents who love each other. I mean, look, we're editorializing now, but I would even say the concept of having parents that in any way even like you vaguely is is a recent thing. You know, we don't have to get too into our kids. It's fine. It's fine. I say this as a parent. It is no wonder there we go that that these ideas of everything and their constitution and government at home, either in church or state, as illegitimate and usurped, or at best as a vain mockery, they look abroad with an eager and passionate enthusiasm. While they are possessed by these notions, it is vain to talk to them of the practice of their ancestors, the fundamental laws of their country, and the fixed form of a constitution. (laughs) and now smart club
Hi, and welcome back to the committee program, a word that I've just said now several times incorrectly. Uh, today, we're actually going to keep talking about Italian politics. We did just hear from Ludovico Manzoni about the uh, presidential outcome and how that went. But today, we have with us friend of the show, Francesca Feo, who is, of course, a PhD researcher at the Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence, uh, in Toscana. Uh, and look, last time, you really helped us get through kind of the nitty gritty of Italian politics in this horse race way. And that's kind of what we were still doing with the president, who's up, who's down, who's smart, who's dumb. But actually today, wanted to bring up an issue that maybe gets at how policy actually gets made in Italy, how a bill becomes a law. And I think folks in the US may have the dual notion that there must be kind of just generally more progressive policy all over Europe because that's what's for dinner there. Uh, and also that there are probably sort of cultural barriers to getting things done. And those all came together in this, uh, in the Zahn bill. And uh, for those at home who don't know, the actual title of this bill is Measures to Prevent and Tackle Discrimination and Violence on Sex, Gender, Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity, and Disability. And you know, really kind of in that way that uh, transgender rights does bring out a lot, it brought out a lot. But Francesca, what can you tell us about the origins of this bill? Why is it called the Zahn Bill? Where did this come from? What did it mean? Okay, thank you. And thank you, Adam, for like inviting me again to the program. I'm very happy to be here and to share a bit, like talk about exactly this very important uh, fundamental, I would say, even piece of legislation that unfortunately yeah. I am already kind of getting to the end here uh, that was not approved by the Italian parliament uh, in next, like last November, like November 20. 21, yes. So what are we talking about here? First of all, like exactly as you said from the title, which is a very long title and in a way like tells us a bit about the nature of the bill, which is about exactly like trying to recognizing LGBTQI plus rights in Italy. And Italy is one of the few countries in, U in Europe where like such a legislation is still lacking. And uh, and this was an attempt, and maybe we will get to that, of course, like was not the first attempt by the Italian legislature, so the parliament, like the legislative body, to kind of put forward some kind of regulation of these issues. And it's called the Zan Bill. This is the short name that was also like in a way used and employed by media, by practitioners, and basically by all people involved in the discussion as well, civil society organization and so on. His name is taken by the main proponent that was the MP, so member of parliament, Alessandro Zan, who belonged to the Democratic Party, so the major center-left party in Italy. And uh, let's try to perhaps just recollect briefly what's the story of the bill and what the bill was actually about. So we have to go back uh, to 2018 as the first, like we are at the very beginning of the new, like first government, like very full-fledged populist government. So the coalition between Movimento Cinque Stelle and the Northern League. And in this moment, like the first draft, so the first proposal bill, bill, legislative bill was presented, which was kind of like aiming at legislating in this, in this field. Of course, the bill got completely stuck and um, until basically like the first government, like there was a first change of government. So the, in a way, the Feister movement 
kind of reshuffled and went into coalition with the Democratic Party. So we are talking about like a shift of governmental coalition from like a populist, but also with a very strong like populist radical right actor being the League, to a central left, left, center left coalition, sorry, of the Feistan movement together with the Democratic Party. In this new like political setting, finally, the, the, the ZAN bill, so this very first draft, uh, was then uh, like basically arrived to the first reading in the lower chamber. And uh, from that, we are like now roughly in 2019, one year passed and until the bill was actually approved by the first chamber, which is the chamber of deputy. Here, I need to make also like a clarification. Italy has a bicameral parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have two different chambers like a lower house and the upper house, which is the Senate, but both chamber, like the two chambers have symmetric powers. What does it mean? That basically in order to approve finally, like a law, this has to pass in the same form. So without changing, not even a comma to the text in both chambers. So at this time of the story in which we are now, we are basically, okay, we are like, we are now in 2019 and the bill was approved by the first chamber. What is very interesting and where the actual like very heated discuss- discussion started also in the country is afterwards. So like what happened like in the second part basically of the legislative process when finally the law kind of arrived into the Senate. Which and is a less representative body, like just like in the US, just as it's a slowly less I would say it's slowly less representative, but definitely not to the extent of the like American Senate, because it's still like, of course, it's still like um, elected by the citizens. It's more of a restrictive citizenship because basically like to vote people in the Senate, like the representative in the Senate, you have to be like um, more than 25 years old. So basically like young people are excluded or very young people at least are excluded from the from this type of vote and the type of representation that is given in the Senate is more based on a regional basis. So let's say that like kind of the form of the constituency, it's a very technical thing, but this is what actually changed is that basically like senators are elected on a regional basis and not really on the on smaller constituencies as instead in the Chamber of Deputy. And I don't know, maybe I will probably here say if, if I can, something more about the content of the bill before we pass into the actual like dynamics and of the discussion, yeah, because definitely. this is, is definitely interesting, I think. So as you correctly said, this was like a bill that mainly wanted to regulate and legislate something about uh, the recognition of uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and queer people in Italy, okay, this type of rights. And the, the bill was composed by different um, and also dis- disabled people, actually. This is an important addition because this was something that was strongly um, encouraged and uh, in a way asked for by the Feistar movement. Also, and we can say that as a way of kind of met- making the, the piece of law a bit more legitimate as well. So we are not only talking about sexual uh, orientation and gender identity on this type of minorities, but we are also talking and we are kind of legislating on issues that are uh, in a way in, of interest for a broader population uh, in Italy. So that was also kind of a strategy to make the bill a bit more appealing and kind of like opening a leeway for the bill to be approved. But of course, as we can see, it didn't really work out fairly well. And so 
like the bill had three main points that were then the things that were actually very much contested in the discussion. The first, as I said, was the the attempt to basically like explicitly, finally in the like uh, Italian penal code and so on, have discriminations based on um, discrimination, violence, and also hate speech on the ground of sex, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, and disability finally sanctioned from the penal code. And this is important. So basically like in a way kind of extending like a law that is already there for ethno-racial uh, crimes to this type of accusations and, and discriminations. The second part of the bill, which is also like another article of the bill, wanted to, in a way, introduce into the Italian um, calendar, if we want, like a national days uh, following the International Day Against Homophobia, Bisphobia and Transphobia, which is on the 17th of May. And so that was the second, the second like attempt of the bill was to introduce this day, like in, in a way to also like have like discussions, civil society discussion, but also like in discussions on school, in public institutions about the importance of giving visibility to certain type of problems, to this discrimination, to this type of violence and so on. And third, very important as well, uh, was the like, in a way, the attempt to um, yeah, build at the local level like an infrastructure for like the assist to provide assistance and support for people that are object of violence, and also on the other hand, the creation of databases of homotransphobic assault. So basically, like we can summarize this, like an article of the bill was explicitly meant to make this type of crimes and violation more visible to the public opinion. Basically, like create data, and of course, data have a lot of power in the moment in which you by by data by reporting you make visible like some kind of discrimination that are just going on in the country and very often are not reported and so on so these were the four main parts of the bill and all of them were contested in different ways should i continue maybe or <laughs> yeah no i, th I th definitely and like you know how did these things come together which were the people pushing it together you know who are the forces who's drafting this, exactly you know? and so okay like first of all as i said uh, the the, bar the this bill was approved in the chamber of deputy with a fairly large majority that was composed by forces and parties of the like located in the central left of the political spectrum namely the Democratic Party, as we say, the MP Alessandro Zan, who gave the name to the bill, was part of this party. So the, we had like a very kind of yeah, big majority composed by the Democratic Party, by the Five Star Movement, by um, like minor leftist parties, so Sinistra Italiana, Equals and Liberal, yeah, Liberi ed Eguali. And actually, what was interesting, I would say, was that um, Forza Italia, so Berlusconi's party, in a way, let uh, gave like freedom of conscience to his to their MP, to his MP, its MPs, to vote on the bill. So they, there was not a party line really, but it was like left left free to for them to choose according to their own conscience. And so what we can see, I mean, the, the, the result is that basically, exactly like this kind of vast majority, just to I mean, the only people, the only parties that didn't actually support the Zan bill during the first um, discussion and plenary discussion and then approval were, 
as we can expect, the League, so the North, the, the party, the populist radical right party led by Salvini, and Matteo, so. exactly, and Brothers of Italy. So the other populist radical right party led by Giorgio Meloni. So that was a pretty, in a way, small or rather small, but uh, quite identifiable uh, like opposition to the bill. Things changed during the second, uh, like the second vote in the Senate. And I think this is important to, what is important to stress is that, and this is also the reason why actually the bill was not approved at the end, is that of course, like when we get to the discussion in the Senate, first of all, um, the, the law was basically like fully boosted because uh, by the president of the like justice committee, where it was assigned. The president was a member of the league and he actually postponed the discussion of the bill in the parliamentary committee for six months, as long as he could, basically. So this bill, even though it was already approved by the chamber, didn't get to any type of discussion in the Senate for six months. And then when he finally get to, when the bill finally get to the discussion, of course, yeah, Italian politics is always very fast. There are a lot of things changing. We were already in a completely different era, basically. So we were already in 2021 with a technocratic government uh, supported by a gross coalition. So everyone was involved in the coalition supporting the government, but brothers of Italy. And of course, this changed a lot about the, we say, we can say like political equilibria in the, in the, yeah, in, in, in the parliament, in parliamentary politics, which makes some of the parties that previously supported the bill kind of withdraw their support. And this is what basically happened. And this is why the bill was not approved at the end in November, 2021, 27th of October. Actually. So it's more of a, can we just not talk about this because our new governing partners, La Lega, don't want to talk about this, uh, than a kind of harsh opposition, just kind of death by, yeah. can we put it in the drawer? which is sometimes the worst, most solid kind of death, of course. Exactly. Like, um, I mean, do you think that, is it just because, uh, you know, even we have these parliament that has, of course, expired where the voting electorate is, uh, so, you know, Cinquistelle and folks, but folks who are supportive are overrepresented, is the fact that La Lega is able to, was able to delay it until they could kill it, a result of the fact that they are somehow better at these sort of parliamentary tricks and these kinds of things, or it's just they still have a lot of these residual powers of government for being such a popular large mass well, party? Well, they are a popular large mass party, and they, of course, have a lot of representation in parliaments as well. So many of the seats in the Senate are actually, like, belong actually to the, to the leagues as a party. So... There is, of course, like a different level of these judicial seats. Yeah, and stuff. exactly. Really like at the, the end, is very like it's kind of gritty parliamentary politics. What we are talking about as well, plus uh, the probably what we can say as well is that I mean there was not like a any more like a very clear orientation as well in the in public opinion. So of course, also like in a way like the parties that were opposing the bill even managed to kind of frame public, like the debate about the legislative bill, about the DDL-Lezan in such a way that then 
also in public opinion, there, were, there was not so much of a kind of clear majority or also like a majority saying, but in a way we just don't care so much, which is also sometimes important. You don't really necessarily have like a strong like majority in favor, but also simply like a majority yeah. that is not at the end so interested. And this somehow also in the debate in the last months of the legislative debate somehow changed. So I, I I don't know, to be honest, I cannot make any kind of causal claim here. What is, you know, what was the main driver for the failure? Of course, I don't know. Politics is complex and it's a lot of things together. But this is probably like something that, yeah, also should be taken into account. <laughs> and then it does seem like a sort of a, uh, at some point, by the time this gets to the public who don't follow politics in the same way that people who follow politics do, of course, it's a simple choice. It's yes on this thing or no on this thing. What do we all think? Like, what are kind of, what were some of the public pressures? Like, interested to hear, for instance, where the Catholic Church came in, like, and how they, how, how pressure kind of, how the public put pressure on the parties and vice versa. How, uh, you know, other institutions were able to put pressure on the public. Well, for sure, there's, there is in Italy, and um, there has been also in the case of the of the DDL Zan, like a strong opposition of the Catholic Church. And we also just remember, we have the Catholic Church at home somehow. Of course, the Vatican City is in Rome, so there is a very strong proximity. And of course, it's very complicated to debate any issue like morality issue at the end in the country here we have seen it a lot there is still like a very strong public opinion that in a way even though society is secularizing of course still define itself as catholic and of course there is um, um there is a strong orientation on, by the catholic church in in a way condemning anything that has connection to the issue of gender, especially gender identity, and the recognition of anything that is not the natural family made by a man and a woman, for example. So there has been a lot, of course, of this, um, in a way, pressure by the side of the of the church. And also during the parliamentary debates, for example, there has been like a couple of instances in which the Catholic Church, so the diplomatic body of the Catholic Church, issued like documents to the Italian government say we don't want this type of legislation. So like really strongly like stating that they were not in favor of uh, such a such a bill, such a regu new regulation in the in the Italian uh, penal system, basically. So this is, of course, very, very strong. Funnily enough, or not really funnily, but I mean, another point of uh, opposition actually also came from within the feminist movement. And I think this can also be interesting because one of the most tricky parts of the build and actually what was really, really contested was this, uh, like the present presence in the bill itself was of a lot of uh, definitions. So the bill defined what is sex, what is gender, what is gender identity, and, what, and so on. What is disability, what is sexual orientation, and so on. And of course, on the notion of gender identity, um, there has been a lot of uh, controversy, not only from the kind of like usual suspect, so the kind of conservative um, uh, actors, including the church, but including the populist radical right, that of course has strong connection with the Catholic movement and so on, because of course there is not such a thing as a gender identity. Gender is not, in this view, a social construct, it's just 
like a cultural, in a way, articulation of a biological difference that is there. And to be honest, on this point, also the feminist, some parties, like little fractions of the institutionalized feminist movement in Italy were also yeah. against. So the idea of kind of reducing even the experience of oppression of women uh, in something that can be like chosen on the basis of an individual choice uh, was, of course, like not really... Um, yeah, accepted. And so, of course, this created still like another point of critique for, for the bill. I hope it's clear what I say. I mean, it's, of course, it's a very complex uh, discussion. But, no, it is. Yeah. No, it's, I look, and obviously you've been thinking and researching and, and writing about this, publishing on, on this. Like, do you think going forward, does the sort of failure of this bill mean that maybe um, these issues, which are important to a huge number of people for many different reasons, um, will get sort of made into smaller things to get through so that it's not sort of as, as complex? Or opposite, will it sort of even be using kind of a more universal notion so that you don't have to get the details right, which is, of course, something the right does better than the left generally. But, like, you know, we need universal A, B, or C, and that includes X, Y, and Z, but it's not sort of in the title. Um, that's a very, actually, it's a very interesting, like, point. To be honest, I don't know, of course. Like, so what, what, what I can notice from the debate as it has gone so far is that uh, this attempt has been made so the attempt of saying, okay, let's de like let's de-escalate the discussion and let's try to find an agreement on like uh, something that is, of course, not so not such an extensive change, but something that is a minor change, but on which all political forces agree on. So, for example, there has been like the proposal, especially on the right, to get rid of the gender identity notion, to not talk about it, to like in a way not even talk about. Uh, kind of extending some of, some of these like penal instruments of penal law to the sanction of this type of um, of crime, crimes, so of this type of discrimination, of violence against LGBTQI people, and so on. So there has been an attempt, and to and what happened is that in a way the progressive bloc, let's call it like this even though it's probably like a yeah, debatable uh, definition, but if for, especially yeah, yeah. for the case of Italy, but they just said no, because of course, like, you know, it would have been again, like retreating on certain type of position on a point, on a progressive point that they really wanted to make. So it's quite hard to understand where are we going? And especially, I would say that definitely like a more general uh, legislation is possible so maybe there will be space for use uh, for using and for producing like a legislation that doesn't go into much detail with of course the potential like development that at the end if you don't go too much in detail in treating this uh, these issues you don't get any result at the end it just stays at the level of symbolic policies uh, we would say in my so something that is just you know like a symbolical acknowledge but acknowledgement of a situation that is there but actually at the end it doesn't really change doesn't have really like a strong impact for those people that are in a way uh, like suffering from discrimination from violence and so on so this could be uh, like a potential outcome is it desirable i don't know but could be something and the other like the other instead potential um, evolution would be that 
kind of, you know, the progressive forces will keep on insisting and presenting and kind of like, you know, not uh, giving up on any of the content of the bill as it is. Mm -hmm. The only thing here is that um, there is an embargo now on these issues for at least six months. So they cannot present any new legislation on these issues until probably the summer 2022. And then we are going in election on election next year. And then, of course, I mean, everything gets a bit fuzzy when we are talking about what is going to be like the next government and how this type of issues, not only like LGBTQI rights, but also issues of gender equality, abortion and so on and so forth will be treated from the next government. So in any case, it's not really, I would say, like a rosy um, future or perspective. No, and my last question actually ties back to the last conversation we had mm -hmm. on the program, which is listening to you talk about this seems to me like there might be a very dangerous fracture point on the progressive coalition where someone who is exactly Georgia Maloney shaped, i.e. Georgia Maloney, can exploit a kind of slightly turfy kind of yeah. what's in it for women call that may actually bring a surprising number of people who the center left count on as regular voters uh, over. I mean, I think, it, it, you know, it's something that I think she's yeah, smart enough I to mean, jump on. I, unfortunately, I kind of agree with this reading as well. I mean, it's definitely something. And of course, we have seen it already. We discussed it already together in July. Um, of course, like Giorgia Meloni and for the fact of being a woman and being also like the leader at the same time of this populist radical right party that is for now like first force in the country. So we should take this into account at the moment for the time being, like polls yeah. are definitely like in her favor. She's pretty much playing the gender card. And of course, she's very much playing as well on yeah, on the one side, like femonationalist type of discourse. So kind of like using feminist so-called so like feminist issues, but with uh, just as a strategy to kind of uh, developing like a very harsh uh, rhetoric with regards to migrants, for example. So kind of like, you know, identifying migrants and especially male migrants as the perfect others that we don't want in the country because they are also like threatening our women and so on. So I would say, of course, like, I mean, there is probably like as well, like uh, another like, possibility of a very essentialistic use from Giorgia Meloni of this like kind of women identity so really essentializing gender to women experience and so on that would then again exclude from any type of political discussion and for political discussion I intend like legislative discussions um, any possibility to even advancing like um, yeah rights for LGBTQI for our LGBTQI community. And we have seen it as well. I mean, we have seen as well, like how already, like during the discussion for the Istanbul Convention, so the issues about, you know, gender violence and so on, there has been some steps back from the Brothers of Italy party. So, yeah, I mean, again, as I say, it's, not, it's a bit depressing to like the type of perspective that we have for now, but I really hope, um, yeah, we won't get that far. <laughs> Sorry for and we're gonna leave it kind of like on that depressing yeah, exactly. No, I mean, look, there's nowhere to go from there except we certainly hope. Um, you know, at least tactically, I think there's things people can do and try differently yeah. and try for different outcomes. Uh, what are you working on now? Uh, uh, what else you got going on before we let you go? 
what else in terms of my own work? Yeah, like your own work. I'm what do you want to plug? Like um, well, I am actually like continuing working on this issue of uh, like LGBTQI rights and representation in the country. So this is what I'm up now, for example. So trying to understand a bit better in a bit nuanced way what has been the type of discussion about LGBTQI rights. So maybe at one point we can even talk about it again. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me at the program. Oh, of course. It was nice. <laughs> so long. Bye. La imagen por la cual vale la pena arriesgar la vida, sacrificarse hasta la muerte en los campos de batalla de todos los continentes del mundo. And now, keeping up with the Habsburgs. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. I am your host, Arun Chaudhary, and now. Fan favorite Holly Brett returns for volume seven of Keeping Up with the Habsburgs, our extensive, exhaustive, and exhausting look at uh, the rise and fall and rise and future of Europe's most famous family. Holly, how are you? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me today. That's great. Uh, um, that's great. That's like at the airport when you just say random things to like the, the people. Uh, that didn't actually flow with what you said. So I will just say it is nice to have you here. Uh, and listen, listen, there's a lot going on uh, all over the world. We still consider this to be a value and impor- valuable and important exercise. Can you remind us where we were? Yes. Last time when we left off, We were getting into the 1400s, which is an incredibly exciting period of time in the history of Europe and as it pertains to the Habsburg family. It's really this time where we're setting the stage for what will become the Protestant Reformation. And I believe that if we're to understand the modern day goings on of the family, that we have to understand this crucial time period right before the schisms that divided Europe that we are now contending with today. Okay. All right. Let's hear about it. 14th century. Let's dive in, y'all. Great, great. So before the Reformation, we have to understand that there was a battle in Europe that wasn't just a war of ideas and ideology, but rather the contention of all sorts of factors working together that made what political and religious interests there were manifest. So we're not just looking at what the church was saying, what people were thinking at the time, but we also have to look at the economic situation. We have to look at how the cloth prices were fluctuating at the time and how that impacted people. We're going to have to look Mm -hmm. at the Ottoman Empire and how the threat of Ottoman invasion of Europe was truly a huge threat that the Habsburgs fought off and contended with leading up to this era and before it. We have to look at military might and naval movements. There, mm-hmm. We have to look at, at piracy in the Mediterranean coast. There are so many factors that were in play at the time that were really setting the stage for the ultimate showdown that we'll be getting to in future segments. 
Where, where were the pirates? Sorry, I, I, you know, we have a viewership. I think they'll be interested in pirates. Yes, so the pirates, there were Ottoman pirates in the Mediterranean uh, in the, the 15th and 16th century, and they were responsible for looting and destroying much of the naval ships of the European empires. So piracy in in the Mediterranean uh, was a huge disruption to trade at the time and what locations different groups were in um, were, were very important to their ability or not to be moving about in the Mediterranean and trading. That's, that is... How can we tie that into now the kind of like, you know, power structures we see in the kind of Mediterranean versus more kind of global north? Like, uh, you know, are, are the Habsburgs some sort of guarantee of more middle Europe against those forces? They were. So the Habsburgs played a role of making sure that people could actually move through their empire. So they cared very much about having contiguous land, right? So they wanted to be able to be able to move from the edges in the east of their empire, on the edges of Bohemia, the Ottoman Empire, to be able to move through to Italy, to in, into the Alps. Uh, and so they had the whole contiguous zone, and it was very important for them to maintain the contiguous nature of the land. And so I think that what it relates to today is how borders affect our movements and, and affect trade. And I think that the Habsburgs really are a model to look at for how to really uh -oh. maintain an empire. Yeah. 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 And then uh, of I have course one more kind of, uh... Oh, no, one more geographical question. But their their actual only outlet into the water is still it is uh, like Trieste and it's the it's the Adriatic. That's right. That's like the ha that's the Habsburg coast. Right, that's their zone. Yeah. Yeah, and then of course they were fighting at this time the uh, the Ottoman Habsburg wars. So we we kind of forget about the Ottoman Empire when we're talking about Europe, but the Ottomans mm -hmm. were the biggest threat that they were facing at the time. And so the Habsburgs really had to hold down the fort in their homeland of Austria to keep this from happening. That was a constant threat under which they were operating under. And I think that we should give them some credit for doing it successfully. I think that if they hadn't done that successfully, would there really be a Europe? So that's the question that brings us back to today. How can we imagine Europe if the Habsburgs didn't exist and didn't fight this fight? Or what if they had failed? I think that you would see the Ottoman Empire coming into Europe and we would have a totally different Europe today. Then we do. No, yeah, and actually, the uh, you know, we certainly we've broadcast a show from Kosovo, several uh, other places that are in uh, what was the Ottoman Empire, and it's a fascinating part of the world uh, that has been erased in so many ways by the victory of Northern Europe, the Global North, uh, whatever you kind of call the kind of hegemony that that we live in now, that we actually don't 
hear the story of a different kind of Europe, which was Ottoman Europe. We don't hear the story. But one thing that uh, that I'll close on if you know, and if you don't, we should look it up and get back. This all has something to do with the invention of the croissant, and I'm not exactly sure when that happens, but there's something, because it's a cross, and it's like a victory, and it's the Ottoman Empire, and there's something. That, there's something in there. That is right. I believe that the croissants were made actually in Austria and by Austrians as a celebration of a victory against the Ottoman Empire during one of the attacks on the city. So when they had successfully fought off the Ottoman forces, the next morning they made crescent-shaped pastries as a sort of mockery of the Ottoman symbol. Um, and so that's how we ended up with croissants today. That's the opposite of the story of making matzah in which we, the Jewish people, just mock ourselves by making really badly bad bread very quickly. Right, right. So, you know, this is one of the difference of the continental things. But thank you, as always, for helping guide us through uh, these historical moments and helping relate them not too closely to the present because sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. And we talked about that backstage a little bit. Not too closely to the present, but we can still find, I think, both knowledge solace and inspiration indeed indeed and i'm very excited to get to the next bit too we'll be moving ever closer to the present um i have here another book another large tome a history of the Habsburg empire 1526 to 1918 and i'm super excited to start tucking into this and finding all of the information that is so relevant to our viewers I'll tell you, this Reformation thing sounds like a doozy. I'm excited for this whenever this thing comes up. This sounds like a hell of a situation. Yeah, it really was. It really was one hell of a situation. I'm very excited. Thanks so much again for joining us tonight on the committee program. You can always support the show by becoming a member on patreon.com slash committee program. You can follow us on all of our social media accounts, including on Twitter at committee pro YouTube, the committee program, Instagram, the committee program, Facebook, the committee program. And you can actually visit the committee program company store now at T public the committee program shop. We have a couple of things. We will try to get some more. Special thanks, as always, to our team, Javak Castrati, Fiamma Melli, Jacopo Castelletti, Forrest Lovett, and committee's deputy director, Julia Doubleday. Try and look alive out there, folks. It's later than you think. It's the end of our broadcast day. Thanks for listening.
This was the fifth program in our second series. For more global infotainment from the committee program, click on the video screen right or screen left. Please like and subscribe to the committee program on Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern and 10 p.m. Central European time.